We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. Our guests will explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Hey, 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 you. Thank you very much. I need somebody with a human touch. What's that got to do with G.I. Joe? Nothing, but that's okay because it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we are continuing our look at the disavowed era with G.I. Joe issues 36 and 37, Union of the Snake, part one and two of six. This was from Devil's Due, November and December 2004. Now, talking about the issues with me today is my co-host. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. <laughs> hello, Tim. I was just trying. I was just in the min- in the midst of introducing you. I was thinking of all of the puns that I could have used. I could have called you a real American snake charmer, uh, perhaps. But it's just you and me today, Tim. As Gij is taking a break from uh, the show, the door is being left open for when there is space in his life to uh, resume uh, recording with us. So uh, all the best to Jay, and uh, we're definitely thinking about you this episode. Yes, and uh, uh, every time that I uh, see a panel that I really like or really don't like or uh, feel like uh, making a comment about color, I will wonder, would, would Jay like this panel and I don't like, and I don't like it, or, or I don't think I like the color in this panel. Is Jay gonna like this? Or you know, I kind of like the color in this panel. Is this gonna be that surprise where where Jay uh, doesn't? So, uh, Jay, you are you are on our minds uh, not just while we're recording the episodes, but while we're reading these issues. Mm-hmm. Jay wouldn't like that characterization of Scarlet. Uh, it's just <laughs> every panel with Scarlet in it, probably. Uh, <laughs> so. Hey listeners, it's Tim. A week later, I thought of this reference to a previous episode and asked Mark to insert it. I was making comments about issue 35 of Devil's Due, the cover where it's Snake Eyes and Wraith facing off in profile. And the G.I. Joe example that is actually the one I should have thought of is this. Issue two of Resolute. G.I. Joe Resolute number two is one of the toy pack-in comics from... 2009, the story is called 22 Minutes. On the left, Tunnel Rat. On the right, Storm Shadow in a slightly different version of, of his costume. And on the left, Tunnel Rat's uh, knife and on the right, Storm Shadow's sword have come in and crossed. And then behind them, there's this prop with a bomb. And that's that's the light source, this, this sort of column behind them. So very similar composition to Devil's Do 35. But anyway, there's the comparison. Back to the episode. Now, back to G.I. Joe. Back to issues 36 and 7. They are written by Brandon Jawa. Brandon, Brandon, Brandon Jawa. 
Pencils, Tim Seeley. Backgrounds, Jason Millett. Inks, Corey Hampshire and Sean Parsons. Colours, John Rausch uh, on 36 and Brett R. Smith on 37. Letters, Robin Spear of Dreamer Designs. Editor, Mark Powers. Graphic Design, Mike Norton. Production Assistants, Sean Dove. And Military Consultation, Andrew Swenson. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. The cover to issue 36 is uh, drawn by Tim Seeley and colored by Jeremy Roberts. And it's it almost has a painterly quality to mm-hmm. the color. There's a lot of careful rendering and uh, it's most of the original 13 Joes uh, coming toward us in you know sort of a battle scene they're taking up two-thirds of the cover and there's a bit of ground on the bottom and some empty sky on the top with a big explosion or two behind them um, what's a little unusual about this is that they are running from right to left and uh, more often than not in american comics characters are facing left to right or running left to right mm-hmm. but uh this is this is striking this is a nice drawing by tim seeley I would like a little more tension in the poses, but it is a striking cover and certainly one of my favorites uh, in the Devil's Do run because it very much feels like the early package art. It very much feels like G.I. Joe 1982, 1983, where there's some Joes and there's an explosion behind them and there's a lot of yellow and red light. And, uh, you know, there's no uh, new tech or sort of non-player character or Cobra character. They're in their old, their classic costumes. Uh, so I I do like this um, I do like this cover. Do you know also what uh, it it brings to mind, Tim? Uh, it brings to mind issue four from the Marvel run, which was by Bob Hall and Al Mil- Milgram, because this is very definitely an homage cover to that issue. Huh. Okay. That's uh. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, good call. The reason why this didn't occur to me is that if you were dis- if you were to describe the cover in words, yes, I think someone might see a big link between the two. If you were to put them next to each other, uh, there are enough differences that uh, they don't immediately announce themselves. And it is not a it is not an homage in that traditional sense where um, Seely has redrawn the precise poses. Uh, and the precise composition. This is one of these, what I might call definitional homages, where like it's the description. It's like, okay, these Joes left to right are doing this, and there are two explosions in the background. Now you draw it, right? So uh, the original uh, Hawk is wearing something on his head, and uh, there's an American flag uh, behind the two explosions, not a sort of orange sky. The Joes are just coming straight toward us, and and then, you know, the color of the ground is different in the original. It's blue with a little bit of blue-purple. So this is not one of those covers where I feel like Tim Seeley has to, you know, sign it like Seeley after Hall. Um, but yes, uh, good call. This is definitely a kind of homage. Yeah, as you say, it's descriptively, it's it's very much the same that you've got two big explosions in the in the background and the, the Joes are on a battlefield running towards us although not not as you say not as directly as they did on the original cover and left to right you've got stalker um snake eyes hawk scarlet and rock and 
role. So very, yeah, very much the same subject, but executed in, in a very different uh, way. I also, I also appreciate this cover. This is chapter one of a new story and the previous arc uh, slightly reset things or, or maybe that's not that uh, set up a new status quo. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. Hawk is Hawk is out. Uh, Cobra Commander is captured. Destro's in charge. And um, back when this issue came out, which remind us, uh, okay, cover dated November 04 and December 04. Back when this issue came out, I had stopped reading this series. You know, uh, I I read the first ten or so, and I came back for issue twenty one, and. This cover did jump out at me, and it wasn't enough to get me to read it or to get back into the series, but I liked this cover. And I remember thinking, oh, this must be a flashback to to year one. Mm. And I think I had the general sense that this was after a big story and before another big story or the beginning of a new story. And that something about this, uh, you know, maybe this was a fill in. Uh, a chance to give the team, creative team, um, some time to catch up. Maybe someone else came in. Maybe there was a key flashback that spoke to early G.I. Joe. And I have to say, even though we're talking about the covers and not the interior, now that I've read the issue, I understand thematically how it links to the interior. But I am a little disappointed that it isn't just uh, a flashback to some untold Mm. tale from Mm. around the first year. That would have been fun. And curiously, on the cover B for this issue that I've just pinged across to you. Uh, it's it's somewhat unusually that the cover B is the same drawing, but with a different color treatment. So the the cover A is Tim Seeley and Jeremy, Jeremy Roberts. Cover B, the second printing, is Tim Seeley and Brett R. Smith, and and sort of executed in a with a less painterly kind of uh, palette, I would say. Interesting. Where where I tend to get my my cover info for Joe, there there isn't even a second printing uh, listed. So in this moment, I'm a little surprised uh, to see this. You know, by comparison, uh, the second printing looks unfinished. Mm. Um, there's so much sort of yellowish uh, along Hawk's legs and Scarlet's legs, and then uh, Breaker's legs and Rock and Roll's legs. There's clearly a bright light behind them because look at Snake Eyes' head and shoulder. Look at Hawk's head and shoulder. There's all that white, right? There's a really mm. bright look. Look at um, Scarlet's two thighs, right? She should be backlit, but then there's this. There must be some secondary light source, sort of where we are. It's a nice. It's an interesting comparison. Um, and then the ground feels sort of again unfinished. Yeah, the second, the bottom half, of the cover on the second printing to me just looks unfinished. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, possibly a design choice, just, I don't know, to make it look like it's almost a work in progress. Yeah, there there, there are those uh, there are those covers that the publishers have done in the last 20 years where uh, it's called a sketch cover and it's, it's sort of reproduced from the pencils. Uh, and there are sometimes some covers where they'll sort of cross fade, like the top half is inks and then the bottom half is just the pencils or... Like the top half is color, and then the bottom half sort of crossfades to just the white with the inks. And this feels a little like that, but mm. this just sort of looks like the colorist ran out of time. <laughs> maybe, maybe. An example of where I think Seely um, could get stronger with compositions. Um, there's there's a bunching. Hawk's hand that's up is about as high up on the cover 
as uh is that grand slam who's got the jetpack um it, it's grand slam or flash isn't it yeah i'm I'm sorry to joes who know all the toys perfectly i don't know the toys perfectly and i get those two guys mixed up it's probably um, grand slam is more more associated with the jump with the okay. jump jet i guess isn't he Thank so you. yeah uh, so hawk's hand should should vertically even though he's close to us his his hand on the cover should be higher than grand slam or grand slam just copy him and like paste him like one whole grand slam higher so that he's just under the the 36 and the price and the cover logo there's this horizontal negative space below the logo before the below the issue number above grand slam above hawk's hand to the left of the explosion and that I want that to be broken up a little bit. That, that space jumps out at me. Mm-hmm. Cover of issue thirty-seven is drawn by Tim Seeley and colored by Brett R. Smith, and it's Snake Eyes uh, from the waist up, and his arms are up, and he is shackled. There's shackles around his wrist, holding his wrists, holding his arms up above his head. And there's a collar with two chains going to that. And he's sort of hunched forward. His um, head mask is torn. So you can see his hair and uh, most of his face below his visor. And he's got gritted teeth. And the whole thing is cast in red light with the red light sort of uh, fading up to a light red that's not pink. That's not orange in the bottom left of the cover and um, in big big block font it says enemy of the state and this is a good drawing and a good composition and i've always been bothered by this cover this cover has always made me grumpy and (laughs) disappointed because i don't like seeing snake eyes in such a position of weakness or subjugation and there's, there's two things here that's happening that i don't like one i don't want to see snake eyes powerless like this and there is another way which i'll bring up in a moment to show snake eyes powerless that still um doesn't like rob him of his dignity now you could argue that this is just really a compelling image and gets you to pick up the comic and buy the comic oh my goodness what are they doing to snake eyes i have to find out the other thing is i don't love the gritted teeth that feels like it sort of belongs to a different character. And I know that Snake Eyes has a mouth and can open his mouth and has teeth. And it's not like we can't see them. But I've, I've always had this sort of internal rule for Snake Eyes, which is that, um, and I, I feel like I'm following on from mo- almost all of his portrayals in the Marvel run, which is like, okay, you don't see his face. If he's, if he's got his mask off, he's in shadow. And... Mm-hmm. Devil's Do resets that because, you know, in issue one, he's he's been fixed. And, you know, he smiles when he proposes to Scarlet, which I don't like. But hey, happy ending. But I, I sort of feel like even though he, okay, he can't speak, but of course he can open his mouth. He like brushes his teeth, right? But I, I sort of feel like visually, symbolically, he, sh- he sort of shouldn't open his mouth. And... You, you, listeners, you might be think I'm thinking I'm taking this too seriously. Some of this to me is like the potential of if someone in comics, 
it's like if they have their you see a panel in comics and there are three people and they all have their mouths open and there's one word balloon pointing to one of them to me that's a that's a mismatch also if you see a panel in comics there are three people they all have their mouths closed and there's a word balloon pointing to one of them that is uh, a mismatch to me and and as a general rule i think whoever's speaking in a panel should have their mouth open and whoever's not uh shouldn't and you know, when Snake Eyes gets, here's the other thing, when Snake Eyes gets angry or enraged, when he's going to take down the robots, the ninjas, Cobra Commander, I feel like there's still part of him that's in control. In issue 97, when he infiltrates um, wherever Cobra Commander is being guarded by the Night Creepers, is this issue 97 or is this issue 90, 96, 97, 98? Uh, Snake Eyes puts a very uh, knife to Cobra Commander's neck. The issue with the Night Creepers and Snake Eyes grabbing Cobra Commander on the front cover is 108. Right, okay, okay. Um, but I'm remembering this scene, right? It's Mark Bright. Snake Eyes has his knife up to Cobra Commander's yeah, neck. Not yeah, on the cover, but inside. Yep, okay. that's how I remember it. Cobra Commander says, everyone back away. And this is Snake Eyes saying, stay away from me and mine. And Snake Eyes is in control. He's not, I know he can't yell, but he's not sort of doing his version of yelling. He's like calm and collected. And this gritted teeth thing feels very like, you know, you know, Wolverine and Lobo and the Punisher mm. and like. <laughs> so um, as a cover and as an exaggeration of the interior and as a thing to get you to pick up the book and buy it. Great. As a, as a portrayal of the cover, it feels like a slight betrayal of the cover thoughts <laughs> thoughts mark as you say tim um sort of yeah snake eyes comes across as cool collected calm you know it, keeping his emotions in um sort of not being kind of big with the with the whole you know big bombastic kind of thing you think the the gritted teeth as you say lobo wolverine that's sort of spot on so so yeah that sort of stoic cool calm collected masked or bandaged or in the shadows, that that feels right for for Snake Eyes from from the Marvel books. Here's a comparison. Let's say it was the same cover, but he's somewhat in shadow, and his face is silhouetted, but you see his eyes, and they're a little narrowed. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you. People might think that you're ov overreacting about this, but you know, if you're the kind of person who would overreact about this sort of subject, then, then you'd be the kind of person who'd write in to to a letter column specifically complaining about Snake Eyes having his mouth open and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I think what you're referring to was not a complaint uh, uh, two years ago in the IDW run, but an observation. Was it a complaint? Uh, I remember the tone of my letter saying, hey, here's a slight inconsistency. And I recall Mr. Hama in his response saying, I never thought of it that way. But he uh, agreed. He agreed with you, Tim. Uh, yes, if I, I, I felt wonderful. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a comparison, dear listeners... Issue 269 the, of the continued Larry Hama run from IDW, which is chapter four of Snake Hunt. Cover A by Robert Atkins is Snake Eyes, I think unconscious, not asleep, um, behind bars on the floor of a jail cell. And there are some jail bar shadows cast over him. And we're seeing him between uh, a couple um, bars and... That's a really striking cover, and I feel like it is one of the, it is one of the most interesting GI Joe covers ever. Um, mm. 
because we're seeing this powerful, all-powerful character in a position of subjugation, but it asks a question, it doesn't direct us too much. And then sort of as a sideways comparison, right, uh, one issue earlier, IDW issue 268, Snake Eyes is on the ground amongst some rubble and Scarlet is behind him. And this is a very confusing cover because it's referencing issue uh, 31 from the original Mm -hmm. Marvel run. And in the original cover, Snake Eyes is recovering from an explosion and a bad guy is looming over him. Whereas in this... Uh, snake eye uh, snake hunt chapter three it's scarlet for some reason uh nice image doesn't make sense so the comparison here is devils 237 with uh idw 269 and and it's it's not a fair comparison but here's a here's a version of a different approach Mm. very good i was also thinking about because i was looking at the other day um dave johnson's cover to punisher max uh where the punisher is behind bars and uh, very sort of design heavy heavy uh version difficult to guess to convey that that would be snake eyes but uh and also an unfair comparison because dave johnson is one of the best cover artists uh out there but uh <laughs> for uh variety why not okay t- tim so if people have been uh, listening to these as they've been coming out they've probably twigged that there's been a little bit of a delay between our recording them and the release date because we refer to uh, things such as the Kickstarter for the After Action Report, which has uh, concluded uh, a little while ago, and uh, so so actually it's been a, it's been a little while since we, um, as in you and me, last discussed uh, Devil's Due. So before we get to into a pro- plot breakdown for this issue, I thought it might be useful just to have a re- recap of what happened last time. So, Tim, if you could maybe give us the blurb of previously on G.I. Joe, please. All right, this is from the inside front cover of 36. Last issue. Cobra, an armed militia dedicated to the overthrow of the U.S. government, has unleashed a wave of violence that not only destroyed a city, but compromised their enemies, G.I. Joe. A squad of Joes has been dispatched to New Moon, Colorado, to extract a group of their colleagues who'd been assigned to investigate the suspected Cobra Front town. Both sides took casualties, but when it was clear the Joes had the drop on them, Cobra turned the tables in the most heinous way possible. They detonated massive explosions throughout the city, destroying it completely. Worse, they were able to manipulate the media into blaming the Joes for the seemingly innocent town's destruction. Meanwhile, Destro, the current leader of Cobra, received news that could change everything for him. His wife, the Baroness, is pregnant. Very good. It's all come back to me. Um, So what happens in these two issues? Uh, I'll tell you now in the plot breakdown. The jugglers, headed up by General Gibbs, dismantle the G.I. Joe team for their part in the disastrous New Moon operation, while also working with Mikhail Dorenko, a.k.a. Overlord, who is overseeing Serpentor recovering in a Bacta tank. In Fort Huachuca, Thomas Stahl is at a court-martial case in regards to his treasonous behaviour in the New Moon mission. While the other Joes involved in the operation, Snake Eyes, Mayday, Roblox, Clutch and Mirage are arrested. The remaining Joe force is reduced to just a 12-person active team. 
Duke leaves Flint in charge while he confronts the jugglers, and he is thrown in jails with Snake Eyes, but the two of them are rescued by Scarlet and Storm Shadow, who returns as a surprise ally. Destro consolidates his power within the Cobra organization and reorganizes responsibilities. At the meeting, Mistress Armada is wearing a necklace with a video uplink that allows Zartans to spy on the proceedings before he turns his attention to the torture of Dr. Mindbender to find more about the Tempest device. Meanwhile, in Turkey, we are introduced to the mysterious army general named Philip Ray, who fights Major Blood. At the Quad Prison, Lady J, Stalker and Lifeline visit Cobra Commander, who is being counselled by a Dr. Edmonds. So, there we go. That is the end of the plot breakdown. So, Tim, as you know, I've been encouraging us to be positive in our last few episodes talking about the real american hero issues and probably more than ever saying something nice about the issues is needed here so let's get ourselves started uh, with some positives oh yeah i got one right off the bat uh, the coloring in issue 36 is lovely and a nice step up. Um, it's John Roch, mm-hmm. who has a great sense of light on the first page of issue 36, right? It's it's sunset and the whole scene, the whole page, there's all this orange light. Mm-hmm. And uh, you turn the page and there's this very conspicuous woman at the... A baseball park in a green hat and a green tank top who ends up not being a part of the story but anyway um, <laughs> but the, you know the light's continuing and then even on the fifth panel of this second page um there are these trucks coming in and look at the look at the cast shadows on the backs of the the trailers from the cabs behind them uh and then you know the scene where um uh barrel roll and what's his brother's name future bad guy is that, is that his name? <laughs> blackout is he called blackout uh, page seven, um, really nice treatment of of highlights on uh, this guy's face as he's scowling at us. And then uh, on the next page, uh, you know, one of the things I don't love about the last mm, 10 years of um, Real American Hero issues at IW, IDW is every time we're in the pit, uh, the Joes are like bathed in green light from all their computer monitors. And here's a scene of Joes in their headquarters with green computer monitors behind them, not bathed in green light. Um, they look great. Um, I really like the color uh, in 36 uh, compared to the rest of the Devil's Do Run. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I thought that uh, I might might hear something from you about that. So uh, worth noting, John Rausch, 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 Rausch has gone on to become quite a big name in in coloring i guess that he had a very uh long run on invincible and in the world of gi joe he's also done a fair amount of coloring over john royal on uh, his cover work oh right okay huh yeah and yeah it's it's a very different look to the rest of the the devil's due colors what i, I noted was there's it's quite high sort of a saturation it's a lot more of a hand-drawn look although i think it is computer colored but there's a lot less of the the kind of the computer gradients occurring a lot yeah a lot stronger here's listeners if you're wondering how i how i see these differently look at the first page of issue 37 
all of the brightest things in every color is white. The highlight on no, every color is a white. The highlight on the his tank cockpit, the highlight on uh, General Ray's helmet, the bottom, the last panel, General Ray's shoulder, the the dirt, the 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 uh, tank treads of um, General Ray's weird tank in panel three, the green <laughs> of the tank, every brightest color is a white, which is a stylistic choice. But then compare that to any scene. Let's say the first page of issue 36, right? Where the brightest thing is uh, a yellow-orange, right? Or flip forward a a few pages to... uh, No, uh, the sunset scene where um, uh, Flint confronts... Who's who's, who's Thunderbolt Ross in this comic? Who's the the mean juggler with the mustache? Gibbs, that's his name. Uh, It's the scene where uh, Flint says... uh, He says to Flint, You don't get it, do you, Flint? Right? The brightest color on all of these characters is, uh, well, it's it's almost white on that third panel where we're seeing a close-up of Gibbs, his hair, his eyebrows. But everything else, it's not white, right? The, bre- the brightest green on Gibbs's um, clothing is, the brightest color on Gibbs's clothing is, is a green, right? There's just two greens, uh, a lighter green and a darker green. So um, that, is, that is one uh, stylistic difference. And... Uh, uh, I think that 36 looks sharp. What's a, what's a positive for you, Mark, in this these two issues? Yeah, the pro- positive for me was very nearly a uh, call out to the, the colours because uh, it was quite striking, um, you know, give sort of as a very yeah con- contrasting use of colour to, to what we've been used to. But what I settled on was a that there's a lot of plot fit into just quite a short space here that, um, you know, I, I'm quite keen to sort of not not linger too long over these issues and to, to make sure that we're moving at a you know pace and and because there's is you know a lot of content to get through from these devil's due years but um i was thinking could we do try and do more than two issues and and just the sheer breadth of the of the plot you'd be hard pushed to, to sort of fit in too much more and, and do it uh, justice so one of my big highlights is is that just fitting in all of that plot into such a short amount of space and, and sort of overlapping with that thought is uh, just using such a wide selection of characters, particularly in, in these issues in in the Cobra ranks. We don't have the thing that's happening in the Marvel books at the moment where there's basically three named Cobras, you know, Cobra Commander, uh, Dr. Mindbender, Laura, most recent issue, Jeffrey the Tele Viper, um, but but you know it, it, here we're, we're you know it's properly sort of using uh, using a wide variety of of the Cobras and they're setting out you know this the new lay of the land with Alexander, Tomac Zamot, Mistress Armada, Major Blood, even Cassandra Knox, and there you've got Wraith and Baroness and Scalpel, and then in some other scenes you've got. The Dreadnoughts, the wide variety of the Dreadnoughts, and and also uh, Scrap Iron playing a big role in that the the fight in in um, thirty seven as well. So there's a, a very conspicuous use of a multitude of characters from both GI Joe and Cobra ranks. Um, something else that that I like being positive is there is a I guess this isn't a fully formed thought, but I feel like Brandon Jurwa is settling into 
a tone for the book and and maybe other readers feel like he got there already or maybe for me it's choppy because of how i read these issues occasionally and then take notes and then talk about them for two hours but as i read these two issues i feel like the the comic has sort of better integrated its mix of the marvel feeling and the animated sunbow feeling and maybe that's part of what mark you just said that a lot happens there's a lot of plot maybe it's that uh we jump around locations and different characters sort of a lot more a lot faster than we do in many uh larry hama issues maybe it's the sort of how the jugglers are used in these two issues and there's this mystery guy that uh, gibbs is talking to in issue 36 who's got a claw hand who you'll have to you have to tell me if that's someone who i should know who that is yeah i don't think he's meant to be a mystery guy but but he isn't necessarily introduced in such a way that a casual reader would immediately realize it uh, so he's he's introduced as mikhail and he is overlord who is sort of co- uh, serpentor's um right. okay. second in command right okay so did we see him without his helmet in previous issues Ooh. So he did show up in issue 27 when Gibbs and the jugglers paid a visit to Serpentor before. And it was a bit of a confusing sequence uh, that we tried to unpick a bit at the time. Um, I think he might have also appeared in uh, Master and Apprentice, but I've not reread that yet. So I can't be completely sure uh, about the significance of that appearance. Because, you know, the toy, he has he has a face mask and... Mm -hmm you know, all you see is sort of the sunglasses part of his face, you know, his eyes. Uh, and here he, he has, you know, like a scarred eye and this sort of golden gauntlet claw, which does speak to his action figure, his full costume that we've seen before. But A, I don't remember if he's been called by his first real name before in the Devil's Do comics. And B, as you just said, he's not referred to here as uh, like a quote unquote overlord. We don't see his costume hanging up behind him in a panel. But um, there's something about uh, the sort of conspiratorial forces uh, at work here in these issues where something bad is going to be happening to the Joes, and it feels a little simple. It is proceeding logically, and it is uh, there is groundwork being laid for it. It doesn't just sort of fall on them. But it, you know, like we talked before about how the jugglers are feel like they're sort of overused in the Devil's Due comics. And um, so maybe what I'm what I'm seeing here in what I think of as Drew was sort of combining the feeling of the cartoon and the Marvel run is a slight simplification of the military chain of command or sort of the structure above and around G.I. Joe that sort of the dialogue makes it make sense. It's like, no, Flint, you're kind of being shut down, says Gibbs. But I sort of scratch my head and I think, it's sort of happening in a, hmm. Uh, Mark, I'm turning one of my positives into a negative. <laughs> hey, hey, this is the positive section. That's all right. That's all right. So I guess a big a big part of the, the plot turn in, in this, which you sort of began speaking to, is that the Joes are, you know, having the, the jugglers, you know, giving them a proper prodding. Uh, the jugglers are, are definitely being shown as a more, what's the right word? Um, sinister? Yeah, a more sinister sort of, yeah, 
negative force than than purely a you know bureaucratic pain in the butt whatever there, there there's definitely something uh there's some some malice or uh some some badness coming from uh, from the jugglers uh here and and sort of alluding to maybe some things that we don't necessarily fully understand but um yeah your your general thunderbolt chap is is definitely a a, a bit of a, a bad egg so uh, we the Joe force is scaled back in this issue to tw- a force of 12, 12 member GI Joe team. The team being Stalker, Mercer, Shockwave, Spirit, Lifeline, Barrel Roll, Firewall, Shipwreck, Gung Ho, Grand Slam, Lady J, and their uh, stand in leader Flint. While uh, Hawk is uh, paralysed and not taking an active role and um, Duke is off on a covert op trying to have a breakout. What do you think of uh, the scale back of the the team and the uh, the team that they settled on? I think it makes more sense because the, the bit where Gibbs says the green shirts are getting sort of deployed back to the branches from which mm-hmm. they came, that's good. The Joe's getting scaled back to 12 feels like um it feels a little like jerwa is thinking that the team had gotten too big under blaylock and he needs to sort of make it make more sense it's like i feel like we were just there it's like we got a small team and we'll call up the reserves by mission as we need them Mm -hmm. and then we're going to make a big fuss about how everyone i need everyone to come back and everyone come you're all welcome to come back and everyone comes back and Duke even says so when he's talking to the original Joes here in 36. It's like, oh, when you all came back, I didn't expect all of you to come back. Mm. Um, so this feels not like backpedaling. I guess it feels like backpedaling. Mm. It it does feel sort of organic because that is what a Gibbs would do in this scene. Yeah, but I feel it's like being it was forced just, on them. Yeah, I feel like it was just, you know, five or ten issues ago that we went from the smaller to the larger team. And I feel mm. like maybe there's a there's a better way of uh, embarrassing or decapitating the team rather than just saying like there are only 12 of you because that feels very um feels like how a kid plays a game with toys we're just gonna have 12 guys this time as opposed to like gibbs saying something like well the rest of your joes are all going to be uh stationed in embarrassing places or difficult places <laughs> or they're yeah. all going to be doing a uh, latrine duty and that might be we're oversimplifying it I think part of what stands out for me with this scene where it's like there's just going to be 12 Joes is there's this, uh, I call it the dramatis personae panel in comics. And mm-hmm. back around 86, uh, there were some X-Men specials and annuals that Chris Claremont was writing and Arthur Adams was drawing. And I can't even remember which one it is, but um, I think it's part of this Guardian Wars but sort of the first page, I think it's the first page, there is a panel with the like seven or eight X-Men that are going to be in this story. And they're just sort of standing there, you know, some have their arms crossed and some have their hands at their waists looking at you. And then like Tom Orzachowski has written in everyone's code name in a little rectangle next to them. It's like, here are the seven X-Men in this issue. And then the next panel, it's the same thing for the new mutants. So here are the six or seven new mutants. And those are some of the first X-Men comics I read. And I thought, how helpful. And also, it's like a cool drawing of these characters. And that very much happens in in these two issues where 
Uh, in 36, there's this panel where the 12 original Joes are like just standing there for some reason in Joe headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, like Snake Eyes and Stalker are standing sort of like at the ready. Like they're going to like this is their front view video game model sheet pose and like yeah rock and roll's got his arm <laughs> rock and roll's got his arms crossed like that's fine and Steeler has a, a a mug like that's fine and then you know in the next issue you have these three panels where it's like here are your 12 joes and then you have these this two pages where destro is rattling off which cobra agents are going to go where and the story sort of slows down uh to visually present present like here's the team and they each get a little box next to their heads with their code names and that's always fun and i like that but um there's a lot of it in these two issues so these like dramatist personae mm. panels which on the first page of a story make sense and in the middle can be very helpful if you're a new reader or you forget who's who but sometimes can slow things down Mm. I think there's a Monty Python bit where they sort of do a dramatist persona, introduce a bunch of characters, and they and they say, and these one, and then these characters will never be seen again outside of this introduction, and <laughs> and that's kind of what happens here to a degree that that you get the introduction to the original thirteen, well, the remain remainder of the original thirteen Joes, but they are only seen on that panel, and then we see the lineup of the the new GI Joe team. And um, we don't immediately see them do anything else in, in this issue. And I have a feeling we don't get to see a lot of them do anything much uh, over the next few issues as, as well. So it remains to be seen. But, um, uh, but, but <laughs> yeah, interesting observation, uh, perhaps. Going back to the original Joes being assembled there, we've got Steeler, Grand Slam, Stalker, Clutch, Scarlet, Short Fuse, Snake Eyes, Zap, Rock and Roll, Grunt, with three characters missing, Tim, who is missing? Uh, shooter. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that just counts as three points for that one. Game over, okay. I win. Well, now that you put me on the spot, I'm getting nervous. <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to embarrass myself in front of Joe fans. So why don't we just skip to the part where you, you tell us. We are missing goes. Hawk because he's been right. uh, shot and convalescing in his, his wheelchair. We are missing Flash uh, because he died on Cobra Island back in issue 25 or so. And we are missing Breaker, who was shot in a ditch by the Saw Viper. Right. Okay. Right. So as an, as an example of how much plot there is in these two issues, because uh, this is a good point that um, a lot happens in these two issues and uh, I wonder if, you know, Jerwa is going to sort of pull it off by the end of the story uh, or if, um, you know, sometimes you as a as a writer with a set of characters, you sort of try and cram in everything in your first story or your first couple of stories. And then you figure out that, you know, less can be more. And we're now. Uh, 11 and 12 issues into Jirwa's run, uh, Jirwa's run. And I feel like this is just how he writes. I don't feel like he's sort of figuring it out and like losing necessarily bad habits uh, as he goes. So here's this representation of just how much is happening in these two issues. 
Halfway into issue 36, there are two nine-panel grid pages in a row. And a nine-panel grid immediately calls to mind Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen, which is this famous exploration of and celebration of superheroes. And the whole thing's on a nine-panel grid. And... You know, what what the two of them do with that nine-panel grid is really tremendous. It's not just a way to cram more into one page and one issue. And at minimum, if you're having a nine-panel grid, because you just need a lot of beats in the scene on the page, or you need to show a lot of where people are and what's happening. Uh, you don't A nine-panel grid doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to be or reference Watchmen. Uh, but halfway through this issue, there's two nine-panel grid pages. And a lot of story within those two pages. Another thing that's happening in these two issues is there's a lot of exposition. I don't know that it's too much. This isn't a, this isn't me wagging my finger and saying bad, bad. But you know, Destro has this long uh, three pages of uh, of dialogue, which becomes narration, where he talks about the new status quo at Cobra, how recent events have been his doing or he's taken advantage of them and all of these agents are going to go to these places and that's really fun but i can think of two places where that kind of scene is done to better effect one is in the idw cobra world order uh, prelude issue which was published between what is it 217 and 218 uh, where Hawk is, it's an issue long of this, where Hawk is just giving a senator a tour of the pit and giving her the status quo of Joe and various enemies. And also, since this Devil's Do 36 with Destro is a talking at Cobra headquarters about where Cobra goes scene, uh, the comparison would be like three pages from issue 90 of the Marvel run, where at Broca Beach, Dreadnoughts and Iron Grenadiers are uh, having a tiff outside and inside it's like destro and fred in the cobra commander armor and i think voltar and mm-hmm. a couple other people are and and destro points to a flow chart and you know i look at this page in 36 where we see alexander tomax zamot and armada and blood and this character who i should remember who she is and then wraith and then baroness <laughs> and then uh scalpel and I like that page, but man, is that page covered in narration? Mm. And as as a if you know, if you're the kind of reader who wants your money's worth, you might get to this page and say like, yes, more. But it's white text uh, on a red background, it's not the easiest on the eye either. Yes, and also sometimes I turn to this kind of page and I think, oh, I don't know if I want to read all this. Maybe I'll skim it because you know, I it's, it's a visual medium. Here's this sort of other dramatist persona thing I was talking about where. There are just nine cobras standing there. And they're not doing anything. No one's uh, like holding a coffee mug like uh, Steeler was a couple pages earlier. No one's like I, the Meta Viper wouldn't be taking the Baroness's temperature because they're all listening to Destro uh, lay this out. But no one's doing anything. Uh, and I, I want some more variety in sort of where they're standing and how they're sitting and uh, or, or if there's a sense that Destro is really in charge, like he's two steps up on a little dais or like a higher part of the headquarters and they're lower and they're looking up at him, but no, it's just, he's just talking for two pages. 
and there are nine cobras just standing there uh, listening to him. So uh, it's a lot of dialogue. Uh, but I, I like the I like the color, <laughs> <laughs> but no flip chart with an organizational hierarchy. It's um, yeah, upsetting. What what else is going on? We've got the return of Xandar. So the back in issue thirty two, there was a person uh, Mindbender made his way to to Zartan's compound. And uh, and he has met, and after you know being a little bit threatening, he's met with a uh, throat a knife to his throat. So uh, presumably the person with that knife uh, to Mindbender's throat in issue thirty two uh, was uh, Xandar. I thought the reveal that he was alive was a little bit underwhelming. It was a bit, little bit throwaway. Yeah, he uh, he just walks in through a doorway, and Zartan says. Ah, Xandar, your friend and I were having another discussion. Um, mm. For me, the the letdown was Mindbender has this convincing two word balloons where he says, Zartan, how can you just let Xandar walk free without consequence? Uh, he took up arms against you and your family. And Xandar says, I was lost. I was confused. Serpentor twisted me and Zartan healed me. And I wanted a little more than that. And maybe that's two panels of Zartan standing between Mindbender and Xandar and like clasping his brother's arm and saying, yes, Mindbender, you don't understand the bonds of family. And then, you know, there's a silent panel where Xandar like puts his hand on Zartan's shoulder. But uh, it's just sort of explained away with Xandar's uh, response. And I feel like there... I mean, there's a lot of forgiving in, in Cobra all these years. You know, someone tries mm-hmm. to assassinate someone else. And then it's like, well, you can come back to the team. So I'm going to start exactly. my own army. Well, I'm going to try and assassinate him. Well, you can come back to the team. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, you know, Destro has got Tomax and Zaymot there. And what are they, they're going to be doing? They are leaders of the Crimson Guards. And they, oh, yes, they will expand the business reach. They'll travel to co- countries occupied by the coil and use legitimate business travel channels to sponsor new governments that they will establish in the name of Cobra. So, yeah, only only an issue or so ago, they were trying to sort of overthrow Destro and, and assume can command. Uh, but, you know, now, now they're a you know, key part of his his new structure. So Cobra is, is generally very forgiving if, if every time someone um, betrayed Cobra, <laughs> they wouldn't have any agents left. Speaking of betraying Cobra, there's a scene in 36 that uh, rubbed me the wrong way. So it's, we're, we're talking about Zartan and Xandar are talking in front of Mindbender. And what we haven't said so far yet is that Mindbender is strung up. He's got torn mm. pants, no shirt, and he's hanging from the rafters of a warehouse with uh, shackles on his wrists and he's, he's chained. He's, he's actually being hanged from his, you know, his, his wrists in chains and, uh, Oh, please. No, no more, no more. And then Zartan walks away and burnout road pig. And who's this other dreadnought with the big, uh, uh, heart wrench, heart wrench. Okay. Well, heart wrencher. Um, I can never heart remember. Wrencher. Each of them has, vicious terrible weapons and as zartan and xandar leave the scene in silhouette in the background you see mindbender still hanging and two of the dreadnoughts with their weapons start to attack him zartan wait zartan and 
I, I don't like that. I don't I don't like torture in my G.I. Joe comics. Yeah, so it, it's a, a bit it's a bit full on. You know, if you're going to hit someone with a cinder block on the end of a stick, it's going to do some damage. Yeah, so there's both a, a, a mismatch where when we see Mindbender in the next issue, mm-hmm. having now decided to help uh, Zartan and Zartan accepting his help, you know, he's got a couple little marks on his face and they're not colored like bruises, but they're sort of inked like they might be scratches and bruises. So that doesn't seem proportionate with getting beaten with a lead pipe and a cinder block on a stick. But also, this doesn't feel like Zartan. However angry Zartan is at Mindbender or however much he needs Mindbender to heal to him, this isn't really Zartan. I feel like Zartan would threaten him with a knife or would, I don't know. I mean, Zart- uh, I don't like it. And that's interesting you say that Zartan is acting out of character. So let's put a pin in that thought and maybe come back to it in a couple of uh, issues time. Okay. Mm, dot, dot, dot. So Cobra. So we, we start issue 36 with Cobra, uh, a Cobra agent killing a guard uh, to get into this stadium and Cobra Mamba uh, attack helicopters covering the stadium audience in red light and they play uh, a message asking the audience to ask questions about what is going on in the world um i think they're trying to convince you know this is meant to be a a pr exercise such that cobra are meant to say look you know what think about your leaders you know we're we're that you know maybe cobra is good uh but if if I was an audience member at that uh, game, I think my takeaway be is that Cobra are terrifying. They're out of control terrorist organization, and they need to be stamped out. Um, so my personal takeout probably not the same as they were intending. I like the idea here that Cobra is sowing mistrust and discord amongst a civilian population, and we have seen that both in comics and in animation. I think there's a, a slightly different version of this scene that works better because, you know, when you turn the page, two Joes are walking and uh, Airborne says they made the crowd sit in silence for five minutes and then they just left. And that is both chilling, but also if the concern is that these Cobra Mambas uh, that are hovering over this baseball, this packed baseball stadium might open fire, but instead are just playing this message that is really scary but and maybe i'm too cynical and maybe we live too much in a like world of, of cell phones now in 2020 and not in 2004 but i also thought if i was in a crowd of a hundred thousand people and we couldn't do anything for five minutes while helicopters helicoptered overhead i feel like everyone would pull out their phones and start complaining and taking pictures and talking to other people far away Maybe, maybe that's not fair. Maybe that's too much 2020, 2022 uh, hindsight. But yeah, something about this scene, like, here's what's also a little confusing. Okay, part of what's confusing to me about this scene, and I, I like this scene, and I like how it, it takes one, two, three, four pages to, to set up what is happening, the big splash reveal of these three Mambas and Destro's uh, speech, right? And... All of the storytelling that happens in those first four pages is visual, right? Like, I mean, Ar- Ar- Armada says, we are go, but she's not like, 
we are go bring in the helicopters you know like shut down the power play the play the pre-recorded message but um a couple panels before this big splash there are a bunch of neo vipers standing uh these are alley vipers really yeah they're blue uh uh yeah i guess they have some alley viper stuff on them is this a recolor that i forget yeah this is a very specific version of the alley viper these are called on yojo they are called alley viper two brackets version eight from 2004 were they in a two-pack with someone they were valor versus venom two-pack with a slightly mad colored red and purple cobra viper cool okay so pardon me uh alley viper all right so there's a line of alley vipers on the page before the three helicopters the splash page and i i don't know where the alley vipers are and i don't know what they're doing Mm. are they standing outside of the stadium so no one can get in are they inside the stadium there's there's like glass behind them and i think there's a reflection of uh trees i can't quite tell but there's a street light they're either keeping people in or keeping people out i don't know which one they don't Mm -hmm. have their weapons they don't have their shields so i think the message here is yes the helicopters are not going to open fire on the crowd no missiles no machine guns you know and on the previous page i see all these alley vipers get out of all these trucks so i get the general sense of what's happening but uh there's a slightly different version of this scene where i'm sort of more worried about the people you know like on that splash page with the three cobra mambas there's sort of three uh civilians down on the bottom of the page who are most prominent um one on the right who's got a baseball cap one in the middle who's got a baseball cap and one of those number one hand spongy foam things and then one on the left and she's looking to the right and her hand is up and i sort of don't know what she's doing um so this this scene is very close for me. <laughs> um, how do you feel about what's his name? Mars Herring? Harring? Herring. Yeah. Herring. Mars Herring. So he's one of the jugglers under uh, Thunderbolt. Ross. <laughs> I'm gonna have to tattoo the, gu- under the guys. General Gibbs. Gibbs. Just just think of the BGs. Hmm. Oh yeah, okay. He's got fight fever, fight fever. <laughs> he's gonna go and shoot it. All right, sorry. How deep is your conspiracy? Your conspiracy. How deep is your conspiracy? I really wanna know. So Mars Herring. So I thought to myself, Mars. Mars is a red planet. Red Herring. It sort of reads as Herring. Red Herring. Is this some sort of uh, misdirect? There's maybe more to this character. Than meets the eye. Da, 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 or, or Destro's company is called Mars. Oh, yeah. That's actually a more a more direct straight line, isn't it? <laughs> I, 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 yours is very good, though, because I hadn't thought of yours. I was just distracted by this guy's giant chin. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this guy's not up to, up to no good. We'll probably find out more in a bit. I, you know, I'm a little torn because on the one hand, I've said... I think the jugglers are being overused and 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 a, a solution would be to make me sort of care about them more or, you know the villains you love to hate make me hate them more and a way to do that is to give them names and individual <laughs> and more time <laughs> uh, identities 
part of what threw me off with the scene where he's introduced is that there's a Joe I don't recognize who's sitting next to Flint across from Lady J on the page where Morris gets introduced. And I thought, is that barrel roll or someone? And then I realized the second time I read this comic, that's Duke with his hair colored wrong. Hmm. You see the panel where he where this guy says Mars Herring, sir? Yeah. So that's that's brown hair. But Duke has blonde hair. And on the mm. next page, on the final panel, or this, on the next page, on the second to last panel, that's that's that same costume. But now that guy has blonde hair. And I thought, oh, that's Duke. Well, of course, that makes sense. It's Duke and Flint and Lady J who are having this brief. But I was sort of wondering why this sort of new Joe from 2003 wandered into this scene. Anyway. Yeah. And there's another guy as well there. Who's the guy in between brown hair Duke and Flint on that table? Oh, is that maybe... Oh. That might be Claymore. Oh, yeah. He was, okay. He was... Yeah, was uh, he in the previous in the, issue? He was in the previous issue when... Yeah, he was in the previous issue. Uh, um, but again, I think not coloured consistently with how he was coloured in the previous issue. So, okay. One of the things that you get for having a writer who's fitting a lot of story and dialogue and many characters into an issue or two and also an artist who's good but still learning is this thing where if you just reread if you just read the previous issue you might know the context for the scene and you'd think oh that's claymore but this scene only shows we think it's claymore one time from behind from far away and he doesn't say anything in the scene, so you don't have to introduce him visually, but shouldn't you? And let's go back uh, two pages, right? Here's another very similar representation of this uh, of this problem. When Airborne and Barrel Roll walk into this hearing room at uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona, there's, there's an establishing panel of outside. There are three panels of them walking down the hall, and then... There's a panel of them having now entered the room and very small in the back of the panel is a judge up on a, at a judge's bench mm-hmm. with a big American flag behind him. And the judge has dialogue and then there's some response and then there's a close up of someone responding. And then the final panel of a page is an over the shoulder shot from behind the judge looking down at uh, barrel roll and whoever's next to him. I think it's still uh, airborne. And the judge has three word balloons of dialogue on this page, isn't named, which is okay, right? I mean, according to the rules of these two issues, you know, like Gibbs is named, Herring identifies himself, everyone else gets a yellow caption box next to their head with their code name. So maybe we should know in, in like, in discussion, right? Like maybe as uh, Barrel Roll and Airborne walk down the hall, maybe there needs to be an added word balloon where one of them says, oh, Judge Henderson is a real hard ass. I don't think this is going to go well for your brother. Or, oh, Judge Henderson is a softie. I think this is going to go well for your brother. Or, here we are at Judge Henderson's <laughs> chambers, room, office, hearing space, box cube. Mm-hmm. Um, but but even if he doesn't get named, I feel like because Seeley doesn't show me what he looks like, I wonder if I'm not supposed to know what he looks like. Are you Are you withholding this on purpose? And I wish that there was a close-up of this judge where we could see his face. Like, well, does he have a mustache? Does he have a receding hairline? Is he, you know, 50-60 or 60-70? And it's not important. It's not vital to the story. But this is one of those sort of casualties 
of the narrative that you get when you have 75 characters and two issues and all of this dialogue and 17 different uh, locations. And actually, you know what? I'll, I'll be fair. I'll be, since, I, since I'm always very hard on the Devil's Due issues, um, this scene reminds me of something else from G.I. Joe, the court martial scene from 1987's animated G.I. Joe the movie, where a Joe and his brother are in front of not one judge, but a panel of five, including Hawk and four people we don't quite know who they are. I think one of them might be Wild Bill, but that might just be the mustache that looks similar. Uh, maybe one's Keel Hall, but he wasn't in the show. And uh, that scene where a where a Joe defends uh, his brother for uh, being um, uh, for getting people hurt. That scene, I have always sort of wondered, who are those other four guys? And I wish that G.I. Joe the movie slowed that scene down or added a couple seconds beforehand so we could know who else is up on that panel with mm. Hawk. And the other four don't have dialogue. Hawk does. So it's not required. But it does leave me wanting a little more. Also, like, G.I. Joe the movie, the, the script is a little bit longer. And there are, like, two scenes that got cut from the script and not animated, right? So, like, of course, the, like, the courtroom scene with people that don't even talk, it's not going to get any longer. Mm. I think um, I so, always assumed that the, that pa- panel of kind of justices were like the jugglers in the movie or an equivalent. Do you mean like generals who are out to get G.I. Joe? Like do do uh, harm to G.I. Joe? Not necessarily, but a uh, an oversight committee yeah. of yes. generals. Yes. Since not that this podcast is about the cartoon, but since the animated series did so little of other military members above G.I. Joe. You know, there's like Admiral Ledger in a couple episodes. Sort of that's it. Those four other guys in the movie always stuck out at me. You know, it's like mm. the fact that um, Lowlight gets a line. He gets to say, showtime. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, give someone else something to do in this. Anyway, otherwise it's like, where are the Joes? Uh, uh, let's get back to issue 36. So, so yeah, these this same sequence, What what bothered me about it um what i struggled with is is the is the fact that we've got uh four joes in in identical green suit uh, sort of the army formal dress yeah not all completely transparently identified or or, and sort of uh, only appearing a brief time uh for a few panels at a time you've you've got the barrel roll dwight stall talking to airborne i think his code name now is mr airborne <laughs> mr airborne and then it is blackout so thomas stall who is is the you know the person who is having this uh, sort of trial or, or whatever they call it and then the next person we have is mirage who is sort of only referred to in a quite small way at the bottom of the page why do i even bother mirage but again, a, a guy, brown hair in the greens. And then, yeah, we don't see any of these people again for, for a little while. And on the facing page, you've you've also got Duke, who is look, looking almost identical to Thomas Stahl. So it just, it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky to follow. Yeah. Talk about a scene that wants some dramatist personae name labels. This is also a case where, you know, the, my comment about the page where the the three panels of Cobra agents are all standing there listening to Destro to give, give someone something to do, give someone a prop. 
you know, maybe Airborne here could be holding uh, a leather attache case or a clipboard or a pen. And that's that's a small thing and it's really nitpicky. But, you know, then when we're seeing all four of them from behind, the one who's got the leather attache case, well, that's the guy who had the leather attache case in the previous panel. And that was Airborne. This is also why, uh, uh, you remember in uh, the beginning of Star Wars Episode uh, 7, when um, uh, one of the stormtroopers, uh, excuse me, one of the First Order troopers, someone dies in front of him and they put their hand on his helmet with the blood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, that's symbolic. That's a dramatic visual. It's like, you also do that kind of thing so you can keep track of that guy. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm about to see 10 other First Order troopers. Oh, there's the guy with the blood on his face. That's the one we're following. Mm-hmm. So, you know, have... Rather than Airborne having a leather attache case, maybe he can have coffee and spill it on Mirage or Blackout or something. It's like, okay, the guy with the brown stand in his shirt, that's Mirage. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. No one should spill anything in this scene. <laughs> um, I, all four of them should have leather attache cases, but the doll should be different colored leather attache cases. Um, so part of the drama of this issue is uh, Gibbs is delivering Flint this bad news. And then Flint and Duke over here on the radio that the Joes that are being taken into custody are uh, putting up resistance. Mm-hmm. And it's cool. This is a, a neat, cool scene. You know, like, Captain, we're attempting to arrest the last of the, the last agent. On the list, and we're experiencing uh, resistance. We don't have a file name, sir. Just uh, Snake Eyes? And Flint and Duke look at each other, sort of like, uh-oh. And <laughs> that's great. But two panels earlier, a military guy points his M16 at Flint, point blank, because Flint is yelling at his commanding officer, and that feels like a disproportionate escalation. Flint is not... He's not pulled out his own weapon. He's not threatening Gibbs. He's he's just said, what do you think you're doing? Right? You'd better hope you're ready for a fight, you son of... Okay, well, he's about to insult his commanding <laughs> officer. But, like, oh, geez. Like, and then, you know, you turn the page and there's a, another, you know, army guy with a helmet and, and goggles and he's pointing a pistol at Snake Eyes and... Uh, Scarlet, and there are then five machine guns pointed at them, and and Snake Eyes is in a pose like he's ready, and there are all these speed lines and this dramatic one point perspective looking down this hallway, like Snake Eyes is going to beat all of them up and not be taken into custody. And I like the idea of this that Snake Eyes is going to put up a fight, but I feel like the other version of this is Snake Eyes just like kicks one of them and jumps up and escapes through an air conditioning duct. And Scarlet's like, I don't know what happened to him when everyone wakes up or when, you know, Flint and Duke run in or when Gibbs runs in. I don't know where he went. And she plays dumb. It would save the whole sequence where they have to go and rescue him later. <laughs> yeah. But instead, um, so, you know, and then here's a bit that I like. The the army guy who had the pistol says, nobody wants to hurt you, sir. Let's just have you assume the position. And then there's a panel of Scarlet looking up. I don't know what that is. And then. It says clack, 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 clack. And all of a sudden, Snake Eyes has got the army guy's arm behind his back, like where you hold someone and you break their arm. And the guy goes, yeah, what is clack, 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 clack? I think that's him, Snake Eyes, putting the cuffs on the army guy. He's sort of twisted them around and grabbed the cuffs and oh, put them okay. on, him in the cuffs. Uh, Maybe. Okay. Or or they're, they're getting dropped because he, the army guy, three panels later doesn't have handcuffs on and and scarlet says snake eyes just let them do their job mm, yeah uh so okay so a continuity thing i don't know where the handcuffs went 
but as a smaller that's the smaller thing what's what's um i appreciate the heightened stakes of good guys going after other good guys and an army guy being put in a no-win situation where he has to take a good guy into custody and it's snake eyes so we know that it's outrageous and also maybe this army guy with the handcuffs is going to get hurt but i don't like all this gun pointing at the joes it feels forced okay i don't know if this is a good segue or not but there's a lot of ground to, to cover in these issues and the the next one i have on my list is the mysterious army general philip ray uh, who plays quite a big part in uh issue 37 and particularly that that his his setup um, in the opening sequence, he's driving this mad little tank. He's quite unusual in that he is a comics only character. He doesn't have a toy, but he has got a very sort of toyetic, you know, stylized, designed costume. So so it's not like he's just a, a random guy in just a you know a standard army costume. Anything. He has got a distinct look to to him. Somewhat for me. Uh, it look, it's capturing some of the visual of um, Cable from the X Men in terms yeah, of uh, the ar- that, that color and the armor on his shoulders. Mm. Yeah, to me, he's sort of like it's like if you handed Captain Gridiron mm. to someone and you said, "Make him a Desert Storm superhero." So you've got the sort of like you were saying, sort of the f- armor, football, helmety stuff, but the colors are you know more more desert and restrained but he's also got this blade this retractable blade uh-huh. yeah um from his wrist which doesn't quite feel like gi joe it mm. feels like not standard this... army issue is it right it feels like comic books and also he's a general but he's leading the attack he's on the front line <laughs> and he's in his own there... little mad little green tank going yeah, and then collision the... head on with <laughs> so on the on this first Major page blood. of on the first page of 37, it's hard to see, but there are two other tanks behind him with some mm-hmm. other people. But I'm going to use I'm going to use that F word again uh, from my previous uh, comment about Snake Eyes getting taken into custody. Um, this feels forced that he's this unstoppable one man army. You know, like Cobra characters are generally not killed or maimed, but this guy just chopped off major blood's hand and he he smashes his tank into a cobra hiss and lunges from it like the this the scale of this fight that it's one it's this one man army and also that he takes on blood all by himself and did i mention he's a general right he's not an e5 or an e6 right like you know we've seen hawk go into battle and like hawk gets a comic book costume for his what is it 19 90 his 1990 costume with the jetpack and in gambits like headpiece oh right yeah yeah like that is a comic book costume that just is now it's still some military because he's got the um like the straps you know that you have when you're like gonna jump out in a parachute also general ray there's there's this thing where he's you know like 50 or 60 and his hair is gray or white but he's got this like full head of hair it's not receded it's not combed back or combed over. It's flocked like a like a oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A, like a real action, real live um, GI Joe with um, eagle eyes and. So whatnot. I don't from the get go. I don't. I either don't like this guy or I don't trust this guy. Mm. 
Um, and then I turn, then I turn the page and a Joe gets killed like in an, in an ignominious way. Like, Oh man. <laughs> and it seems to come after a joke. Let's get, let's get back to that, that sequence. Um, All right. You talk, next. you talk about and Ray. Then, how do you, how do you so, feel about so Ray? So Ray, and this, this was very, I remember this was very much my thought at the, at the time of reading this. I thought, you know, Ray's introduction is, feels very forced. He's, you know, come out of nowhere. You know, the first we ever see of him is on the page of the first page of, uh, 37 we've never seen him before and then he becomes a very central force in the book and he doesn't have a toy so you know it is a comics only character so where is he coming from and, and i thought at the time that you know is is this something to do with serpent or so at the end of issue 36 serpento or uh, as he's now known vecna from stranger things um, is is floating in a, a tank, and Gibbs says we we may need to put Serpentor to good use within a matter of days, and that's the very end of issue thirty six, and then issue thirty seven starts with this charismatic, somewhat superheroic general making an appearance out of nowhere. So I thought to myself at the time, Ray is Serpentor. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, don't tell me what happens. Um, from a from a writing standpoint, if Ray's introduction is abrupt, and we had a guy talking in the previous issue who took up some space on one page and was oppositional to the Joes, Mars Herring. Why not combine the two characters? Like this is assuming that mm-hmm. um, Ray is actually just a guy. He really is who he says he is, and he's not actually Serpentor or some like Cobra agent, right? Why not take Mars out of the previous issue and have Ray in that juggler scene on Gibbs's side, and then he gets introduced in a more natural way? And because I'm sort of assuming we're not going to see Mars Herring again or much. Uh, and then when at the beginning of 37. General Ray is taking down Cobra single-handedly, and Destro is uh, Destro's narrating it. The United States government has declared war on Cobra, and they need a new figurehead to lead the attack. His name is General Philip Ray. He's arguably the most powerful military. Pr- Again, super this like superhero thing. He's arguably the most powerful military presence the United States has employed in the last half century. Like what? But um, like okay, it's like I think you're describing Super Soldier. Yeah. Sorry, but, everyone. But, that <laughs> that role is already taken care of, uh, taken on the GI Joe roster. The next the next sentence is the key one for me, and sort of my mental link to is it Serpentor, and it, it's this sentence. And yet his path to power is less than crystal clear. Um, you know, he is meant to be that. You know, he's he's in this. He's this super soldier, super general, but somehow nobody's heard of him before, or and they don't know how he's got himself in this position of power either so he's a bit of a mystery so um out of hand i don't i don't like ray i don't trust ray but out of hand you know this is not a deal breaker for me uh jerwa could come up with some really compelling backstory in the next few issues you know characters show up all the time and you know maybe there's one line of dialogue you know like mongoose joins the joes 
uh, in the last couple of years in the IDW Hama comics. And he's just there. And someone's like, oh, you're the new Joe, right? And he says, yeah, I was in so-and-so and now I'm here. They're like, okay. And then they go on a mission. And then 10 issues later, Mongoose is back and he goes on a mission. Um, so I could like Ray and Ray could make sense. Not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm going to say, I'm glad he didn't get a toy. Cause I, did I mention I don't like him <laughs> and his little dog too. And his little, and his little armor too. His dog. What? I just, no, no. Uh, the, sorry. The uh, wicked witch from wizard of Oz. <laughs> so another big plot point is a uh, breakout of, snake eyes and then also duke because duke gets himself in trouble and he gets he gets locked up as as well so the there's the breakout of uh snake eyes and they are being assisted by a mysterious person who we find out uh wait about okay before you get to the last page of this issue Mm -hmm. let's go back a few pages so so the jugglers get another scene and Gibbs says, why can't I make you understand this? We are winning. General Abernathy is out of commission. Uh, we can take the organization apart piece by piece. And then Mars Herring says something. And then uh, Duke comes in. He's playing his ace in the hole. And then Ray comes in and intercepts the ace in the hole. And then, as you just said, uh, Duke is thrown in with snake eyes and then they're rescued. I thought I thought that was quite fun. It was like sort of Duke is almost about to blackmail Gibbs and get Snake Eyes off the hook and get get him released. And then uh, Ray comes in and says, hey, you can't just blackmail people. That's not allowed. You're going to get locked up too. Yes, uh, I like that. Well done. So Scarlet has been outside uh, doing recon and on the building where Snake Eyes is, is held prisoner, where Duke comes in to play this... Uh, ace in the hole Mm -hmm. and then there's this three pages from the end there's this uh, almost wordless page where snake eyes and duke are both prisoners in this van and it is such a weird panel where this is the top of page uh, i haven't counted but it must be 19 (sighs) snake eyes is on the left i think and he's leaning forward because his hands are tied behind him and uh, Duke is on the right and he's leaning forward because his hands mm-hmm. are tied behind him. They're both sitting and I think that they're in orange prison outfits and there's like a vent because they're in the back of the prison van. They're both leaning forward and they're not a mirror image of each other, but close. And there's this like this this like weird shadow that I've referred to before, which which Seeley sometimes puts on characters where he, where he wants to obstruct their faces, but it's it's like too much because he doesn't do a lot of that kind of heavy inking. He doesn't spot a lot of blacks and this one panel does. Anyway, but I look at this panel and I thought, who are these two guys? And then on like at the, at the bottom of the page, okay, one of them is Snake Eyes. And then on the next page, oh, one of them's Duke. And, you know, they wouldn't have name tags. And this is certainly not a place to have um, captions with their names. But... I feel like if this was a a different artist in their faces, in their costumes or something, it would be clearer who they are. Or maybe if this were a different writer, there would be uh, some word balloons for the two drivers of the van. And one of them's like, so who are we transporting? And one's like, oh, the that ninja guy, that 
um, made a fuss getting uh, taken in and his commanding his 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 commanding sergeant or, or something like that. But, but like I turn the page and it's like cool four wordless panels in a row. Like oh that's a weird first panel. Mm. And then okay so now you can get to the big reveal on the last page. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, there's smoke and the guards get knocked out and the back of the van is open and Snake Eyes and Duke are rescued by Storm Shadow. With a one-page splash, Storm Shadow and uh, Scarlet looking out from the back of the van. Their yes. rescuers. Storm Shadow is standing like a model in a in a an ad for jeans <laughs> or like sunscreen or something. And Scarlet is uh, standing in this. It's not a babe pose, but she's like looking at us. It's th- this is definitely a page which was drawn so that the original art would sell. And not to like tell the most necessary emotional beat of this story point, because they're 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 posed like they know they're getting photographed. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't look like a guy who just dispatched some guards but didn't kill them. That doesn't look like a woman who just like nervous because she's rescuing her commanding officer and she's going to get court martialed too, right? Like she looks too cool. He looks too cool. So as a as a as a page turn, like cool, yeah, like I'm 20 and I read comics and this is very exciting for me. Actually, I, I guess I was 23 when it came out, 24, but and I didn't read this originally. But maybe that's what I would have said. But <laughs> you know, it's I want a different pose here for these two characters. Also, I haven't said it in, in like a year. This is a dumb Storm Shadow costume. It's too much. <laughs> And and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I hadn't thought that in a while. But here it is in a full page splash where he's like standing so that I get all of it because he knows he's being photographed. He knows he's being drawn by Tim Seeley. Still dumb. Okay, so rem- remind us, when did we last see Storm Shadow and is and how, how much of a surprise is this? So Storm Shadow was with uh, Cobra Commander when he was in that Tibet-like location with the... That, that ninja clan and uh he was leaving with um snake with with cobra commander when they kind of kind of escaped out the back of the the mountain so that was issue 27 and storm shadow was a bad guy he was i think a com- slightly conflicted bad guy Okay. Uh, so part of the surprise here is that we don't expect him to be helping the good guys. Mm-hmm. Yep. As at last we saw him, he was still he was still helping Cobra Commander, and you know he was brainwashed and ha- being you know still sort of struggling between um, his loyalty to Cobra and uh, his loyalty to Snake Eyes. If you just took two elements out of this costume. I shouldn't call it dumb. That's harsh. I don't want to. I don't want, it's like the beginning of the episode. I don't want to be negative. It's. I mean, if you're going to have uh, an aggressively designed Storm Shadow costume with some bells and whistles, yes, this is fun and cool, and there's a lot going on. But he does have four Cobra symbols on him, mm-hmm. and the like um, rope things sort of um, near his armpits. <laughs> I don't. Like and shoulder pads, it's like uh, it's just give me give me two less. There's like this this costume has nine features. It should have seven. The so, the the armpit tassels are non-negotiable, Tim. 
I mean, it's it's a cool decoration, but not also also with the black um, like Y shaped uh, strap or like marking on his tunic, and then also the shoulder pads. If it was just the rope thing, it's like okay, I don't know what that is, but that's cool. It's decorative. Maybe it's like an actual rope that he uses, or maybe it's just a little. Anyway. Anyway. So, um, uh, I'm impressed by how much happens in this issue. We didn't even talk about the uh, interrogation scene uh, with Cobra Commander, which I actually thought was neat. Yeah, let's touch um, on that. Okay, that's yeah, the, the um, big story beat that we've not talked about. I did wonder if the if the if Doctor Edmonds was supposed to be someone. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is going too far and G.I. Joe is actually more sophisticated than this and I'm actually smarter than this. But I saw her and I thought, is that the Baroness in disguise? But maybe that's like it's a bit bit on the nose, isn't it? That's that's eight year old Tim watching the cartoon logic. Like, I bet that's but uh, I did sort of wonder if like someone at Devil's Do is drawing their friend. (laughs) <laughs> it's black because, black hair and glasses uh fortunately well, no, they've they show baroness on the very next page right so, well, what so i mean is uh, what i mean is uh this this doesn't this seems a little more particular than a sort of generic tim seeley like person in the scene yeah so so it's definitely drawn yeah in a non-generic way you meant to this is meant to be a character um yeah. in some form that's like more than just a standard character all right, here's why I like the scene. Cobra Commander is in control. He's not worried. So mm-hmm. he's he's dangerous and he's he's not sort of outsmarting the Joes, but he's he's not perturbed by being a prisoner and there's a threat because there is still an explosive in his in his helmet. Whether or not that plays out, you know, whether they defuse it or he takes it off voluntarily, just the fact that it gets mentioned adds some stakes. And I like the, um, the, this scene is uh, three pages. I like the second page of it where you get this big two-thirds splash of the Joes following Dr. Edmonds into this underground space or this windowless space. And you can see Cobra Commander sitting in this glass prison cell with all, you know, all this tech stuff above uh, and to the left. Hey, look, there are a bunch of computer monitors on the left and they're sort of an aqua and the entire scene isn't bathed in an aqua. Um, and then the, the, the device of, uh, this lie detector, um, if here's an example, the, the, the thing I was just saying about, um, the Joe's characters just standing around, not like doing anything in a scene, just listening to someone else talk. Lifeline does something in this scene. It's very small, but he has a laptop or something. Mm-hmm. And on the third page of the scene, he's at the laptop, right? So stalker gets to fold his arms Lady J is doing the questioning and Lifeline gets to operate the portable computer. So there's a little bit of difference there as opposed to if the three of them were just standing there while Dr. Edmonds talked to them or the three of them were just standing there with Dr. Edmonds while Lady J just talked. So give, give your characters props. Give them something to do. If someone's waiting for the bus in your scene, give them like an apple to eat or yeah. like have them tie their shoes and on just that pre that first page of the sequence, Lifeline is sort of you know lifting up his glasses and pinching his the bridge of his, his mm. nose. A little yeah. it doesn't doesn't need to draw that, but it's a nice little touch. Yes, nice there's, bit of nice bit of audio language there. There's a bit of kind of mystery slash foreshadowing going on there as in this scene as well. They say uh, Lady J asks 
speaking of disguises, is that really you behind the mask, Commander? And then there's a sort of a beep on the light, you know, the heart monitor or whatever it is. Uh, what's... Oh, no, I think this is meant to be Cobra Commander talking. What's that? A question not included on the officially sanctioned list? Don't bother me with your games. I'm exactly who I claim to be. And uh, Dr. Edmonds is sort of giving a slightly funny look to us, the the audience. So perhaps for some foreshadowing going on. Because it's it's the Baroness. Definitely. (laughs) Brandon Drua, that is a great bit of dialogue here where Lady J asks that question, which wasn't in that was in no one's that wasn't in doubt until lady j asked it Mm, yeah and then it turns again because it actually might be correct because of the blip on the lie detector and then cobra commander sort of tries to quash it because he's supremely confident here and uh lifeline's got his eyebrow cocked he and lady j are in exchanging a glance wait a minute was this was this never a cobra commander like oh no what's what did i miss what did we all miss what did the joes miss that's great and then on top of it you get the it is a very like comic book or movie or tv device but it's still fine and effective here that as you just said the final panel is dr edmund sort of looking at the reader and since we are pausing on her maybe she's not who she claims to be she's definitely the baroness <laughs> Cool. Uh, we were talking about. Uh, we were about to talk about the uh, the sequence of that surfboarder being killed. Um, so, do you want to do you want to speak to that, Tim? Yeah, uh, it's it's one page. It's early in the issue. It's it's on the island of Fiji. It's at sunset. The sky is red and yellow. It's very pretty. There's a uh, there's a a, a blonde. Uh, Joe in swim trunks, who's waxing his surfboard, an unseen character off panel with a pistol uh, refers to him as, quote, action man. And then this we think I think it's a Joe uh, says, excuse me, do I know you? You just called me by a nickname I've only used around a very specific group of people. And then the mystery person says, would you prefer I call you tracker? And then shoots him and the final panel of that person's mystery person's walking away we can't see them and uh this joe with three bystanders uh witnesses this joe is uh lying on his back on the beach in a pool of blood under his head and so i think we just saw tracker a joe who sorry i don't love killed by a bad guy on the beach and i generally don't like joes getting killed in stories once or twice a Joe has died uh, and it's, 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 it's been emotional like Mangler in Special Missions 13 or Cool Breeze in what was it, around 115. Um, but other times it has felt rushed or oversimplified or confused or not earned or like a stunt. And this is, this is different, right? This is a cutaway. It doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do that we know of. With any other scene in this or the previous issue, it is a mystery. And then there's this who who it is, but also how do they know that this is a Joe? But uh, I don't think you should kill Joes generally. Mm. And it's it hurts, it's it hurts my feelings. Yeah, it's the first um, the first and last appearance of this um, character as well in the pages of the comic. 
as far as I know. So um, it is a little bit throwaway. I think we'll find out more about this scene in a future issue and what it portends to. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. As you say, maybe maybe just a little bit throwaway. So to give some... Hey, let, let me use a different word, if not throwaway. Mm, Cynical. Please do. Cynical, mm-hmm. right? If if you're making this comic, it's like, well, there's so many Joes and I need there to be some stakes. And well, we've never used Tracker. Who can I kill so that I will gut punch the reader and make Cobra seem really dangerous or whoever the bad guy is and vicious? Well, mm. can't be Snake Eyes. He's too popular. Can't be Lifeline. He's in the issue doing something. <laughs> How about Tracker? He's yeah. no one's favorite and he's never shown up. And I don't have time or space to put him in this very crowded comic. I'll just kill him. That's that's how it reads, even if that's not the intent. So so Tracker was released uh, as a G.I. Joe character in 1991. Um, he comes with crazy accessory. Did you ever have this, Tim? No. <laughs> it, had, it came with an inflatable raft. Like I don't um, like his weird head thing. Mm-hmm. He has a weird head thing. <laughs> visor thing um and uh yeah so uh, but i guess a, mer- a memorable uh character uh in this page they refer to him as a nickname of as action man so this tracker mold was reused in 2004 to create a new character called action man uh, and action man is based on the uk palatoy uh, version of gi joe in the in the uk um so uh action man moving to uh, action force was kind of the, the similar sort of transition that, that gi joe had moving from the 12 inch gi joe to the three and three quarter inch gi joe there have been references to um like foreign versions of gi joe uh, characters mm-hmm. and the devils do run which have been fun and clever this one is just unnecessary like if you're gonna kill tracker don't spend a word balloon distracting the reader with an Easter egg that the toy was a different toy later something. Mm-hmm. Just just kill Tracker. <laughs> you know? But they're killing two characters in, in one go now. It's, they're not just killing uh, Tracker. They're also killing Action Man, who's the same guy because he was the same mold. Uh, anyway. Part, part, of, part of why I uh, didn't buy the toy originally is that um, it it makes him seem too great because the uh, his his file card says uh tracker is one of the few gi joe trainees to totally elude the instructors during the quote escape and evasion phase of the indoctrination course did it a second time this time the commander employed spirit and snake eyes as the query tracker ran them into the ground in less than 12 hours it's like wait is someone out there who's better than spirit and snake eyes (laughs) i don't know about this guy so then i and he's got yellow pants like i'm not gonna buy this toy (laughs) Someone at Hasbro thinks this guy is much cooler than I think he is. So, no. But the, the raft is cool. He comes yeah. with two oars. Oh, he's a, he's a Navy he's a Navy SEAL. He should hang out with um, Muskrat and, uh, and Wetsuit and Shipwreck. Now, there is an issue. There is an issue I'd read. But I can't because he's dead. I spy with my little eye. Okay, so I spy uh, Dr. Cassandra Knox. Tim, do you remember Dr. Cassandra Knox? Uh, I I don't, remind me. Uh, Dr. Knox was the character introduced in Shadow of 
The Bat, an issue not written by Larry Hammer, issue 153. In the issue, she oh. created a new, deadlier type of bat and charged it with hunting Scarlet. Wow. Uh, deep cut. That's, okay. That's, yeah. Brandon Sherwood, that's, that's, the deep, that's the kind of deep cut I can get behind. But, but throwing in an Easter egg when you kill Tracker... I don't need that kind. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, and she has actually been reused in uh, the ARA IDW continuity, even though it is not a toy or Hammer-originated character. Uh, uh, Larry Hammer has written her in to his uh, stories. When was when was that? Uh, this is the, the issue where Bomb Strike is investigating the Black Major, I think. And, oh, and cool. there's the two female scientists... Uh, working together cool um i have an ice by a couple pages into issue 37 we see a uh truck with some uh dreadnoughts uh escorting it and the truck is labeled orbach mm-hmm. which is not arbco or broca but it is another anagram for cobra yes so i think we've had almost all of the the cobra anagrams that you could possibly have <laughs> in some form in the comics and uh, and that was a, that was i think a new one i spot uh, a terrible looking round table that the jugglers are sitting on in in issue 37 page 17 and one of these you know giant round tables which are very difficult to draw because whenever you're trying to show the whole table it just pushes all of the characters out into the edges of the panel you know having having done a little moving recently from one place to another uh i'm and and probably doing it again later this year i'm sort of aware of doorways and the size of furniture Mm -hmm. and uh uh that's a big doorway to get that table in that room (laughs) or you or the tables and pieces and you assemble it inside Mm. the room knowing you can never take it out uh, I had I had one of my uh, I spies, which is not in the comic itself, but is in the uh, Devil's Due news page after the comics of issue thirty six and the letters page. There are two blurbs that are GI Joe centric. One is an entire column, is an editorial written by a televiper. Right, it's actually written by um, Brendan Hay, who must be someone at Devil's Due in two thousand four. Uh, it's called Why I'm Voting for Destro, an editorial by a televiper. And I'll just read you a few sentences. Hi, I'm televiper number 1354, but my friends call me Guy. Uh, things have changed pretty dramatically. Uh, we need Destro as president of the United States. He's the only despot who can return the fear and malevolence for lacking in our current administration. Four years ago, I voted for Cobra Commander. And then there's another blurb on the Devil's Due news page. Again, this is issue 36 which reminds readers to vote which Devil's Do G.I. Joe character is going to hit toy shelves. And there's a photo of the crystal ball toy with two word balloons saying, vote for me, crystal ball. I'm the best of, what? You mean I'm not eligible? Uh, what do you mean I'm not eligible? Uh, and so there's a, uh, there's a link listed at the Devil's Do website for fans to vote for the G.I. Joe fans choice figure pack. Which three G.I. Joe characters should receive new action figures based on their comic book counterparts? Um, rock the vote fast, though, since polls close November 15th. So that must be 
uh, November 15th, 2004. And uh, I don't know offhand which figures made made it. Made it. Uh, this is after Kamakura becomes a figure. Uh, but I'm sure we could sort of figure it out by process of mm-hmm. I uh, think, elimination. I think this becomes the uh, cover girl um spirit and oh, Hannibal yeah. three pack. Yeah, good. Okay, very good. Very good. Um and then there's another uh there's another G.I. Joe related blurb on the uh Devil's Do news page for issue 37 where um it's sort of Christmas themed. There's a highly compressed blown up JPEG image from Rock and Roll's 1982 package painting. Uh, it says "Holidays Rock" by Rock and Roll. Hello, Cleveland. Basis and GI Joe, uh, Joe Machine Gunner Rock and Roll is here to play you a rock block of your favorite holiday. What? This is for print. How in Black Sabbath am I going to blow your readers' minds in print? Ah, forget it. We cool folks. Here are my recommendations for a holiday mixtape that goes to eleven. Remember though, if you download <laughs> these songs illegally, then I'm going to have to shoot up your house. Now let's rock. And there's what? a list of songs like uh, "Father Christmas" by the Kinks and. Um, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. So, uh, uh, again, seemingly written by um, a Devil's Due person named Brendan Hay. Uh, he's he's credited as compiling the Devil's Due news. Mm-hmm. So he was uh, he was page. the person that spoke to rock and roll to get those quotes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I and I, you might think that since I'm sometimes grumpy about sort of having fun with or making fun of GI Joe, that I wouldn't like that kind of blurb on the Devil's Due devil's do's news page it's the opposite that devil's do thinks of gi joe as so important to its identity when it also has the voltron license and a bunch of sort of homegrown comics that gi joe keeps showing up on their news page or they show a photo of them at the you know gi joe convention that makes me happy hmm. also these you know po- these are these are lightly poking fun at rock and roll and uh uh, televiper it's it's not disrespectful like like shooting tracker point blank at the beach after we've never seen it before very good my last i spy is a continuation last time i did uh, a segment called back once again with the gi joe master uh, this one i've got a very different um segment which i'm calling back to the reader It's the G.I. Joes, and they've got a back to us, Marty. So there's a number of uh, G.I. Joes uh, characters who have got uh, the back to the readers. So uh, calling some of them out, uh, Barrel Roll and Airborne, uh, as they are in the courtroom. The backs of the G.I. Joes being led away in cuffs. Baroness and Destro talking to Alexander. Uh, Gibbs walking dramatically out of the door, the last panel of issue 36. And Duke walking dramatically out of the door, page 7, issue 37. Uh, Something in terms of visual storytelling and also writing that strikes me, this is on page 18 of issue 36 that we haven't covered um, after Destro introduces where different Cobra agents are going to go, um, Armada is fingering her um, medallion, the mm-hmm. red jewel around her neck. And there's a close-up panel of it. And then on the next page, when we cut to the Dreadnoughts warehouse where Mindbender is being held captive, 
uh, we see a, a stat of a Destro panel from the previous page, sort of up angle, visually showing that Armada's red jewel is actually a camera. So she must be spying for uh, Zartan. And uh, and there's some dialogue which, which indicates that, that this is also what's going. And I like this. Um, what makes me a little sad is the first panel where you'd be able to see this red gem uh, it's the third panel of page 18, right? So Armada's fingering it in panel two, but we're very far away. And then in panel three, where we would see her hand really holding this red gem around her neck, there's a word balloon on top of it, which makes me sad. Mm-hmm. So that's not an I spy. That's an I don't spy because I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, very good. We could even crash this into error detected as well because the first appearance oh, of that, yeah, yeah. that um, necklace on the previous page is coloured gold, not red. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's there. You go. That's that's an error detected. Uh, but do we have any others? Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. This this is not that kind of error detected. Uh, it's that other kind of error detected. On the same page, this is a very small thing. On the same page, page 18 of issue 36, where Armada's holding her red bejeweled necklace. Uh, in the last panel, there's a uh, word balloon where it says, uh, in quotes, new cobra, and the tail points upward and it crosses over the Baroness's eye and the... That's just a small compositional no-no that you don't put word balloons uh, touching people's eyes because it makes some of the readers go. Right. So that's a, right. That's a, that's a like, small kind. That's, that's not the kind of error detected the you're. It's not. Yeah. That's not the kind of error detected you're looking for. But is the kind of error detected that I, I will talk about. <laughs> I had um, I had blackouts uh, or Thomas Stool's changing hair color when we last saw him in the previous issue, issue 34. Five, he had brown hair, and uh, and now in the, the latest issue, issue thirty six, when he's in that uh, trial six sequence, he's uh, got blonde hair, looking very much like Duke. Mm. That's part part of something, part part of the sequence. I think that's, that threw me. This is why more Joes need to have facial hair. You know, if you look at the Joes in the eighties. So many of them have mustaches and beards, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the fashion of the day. And also, a lot of men who worked at Hasbro on this line in the 80s had mustaches and beards because it was the fashion of the day. And then you get to the 2000s, and beards and mu- mustaches have definitely fallen out of fashion. Beards a little less so. You have some goatees. And I, I, I this is not a scientific, this is a guess, not a scientific survey, but I feel like if you were to count all the new joes introduced in the 2000s Mm. few of them would have facial hair Mm. and one way that i know that it's gung-ho when he's in i don't know like orange an orange prison outfit it's like well there's that bald white guy with a handlebar mustache right but when you get the you know the duke snake eyes barrel roll uh, you know like just sort of handsome tim seeley white guy thing with like a nice head of hair it's like pushed up a little bit with some product in the front and it's blonde or dark blonde or brown. If they're not in costume, I might have a harder time following them. But mm. if Barrel Roll had like 
a crazy goatee or something. It's like, oh, there's this barrel roll, a goatee guy. Yeah, or a facial tattoo or, or something. Or a track, tracker's weird face thing. <laughs> and by which, by which I don't mean a bullet hole. Funny, funny you say about Gung Ho as well, because when Gung Ho was released as part of the sort of comeback of G.I. Joe in 2002 with those kind of the, the funky, less articulated kind of non-O-ring figures, um, he was released uh, a couple of times, once without any facial hair at all, and then the second time as, as a goatee. And, you know, Gung Ho's little moustache there is such a, you know, distinctive signifier of the... Of the um, character along with his sort of marines tattoo that to have neither of those things uh just ends up looking like a kind of generic army character so so yes yeah. when uh when when roadblock was on the gi joe team at idw the non-hama comics post-revolution uh that version of roadblock doesn't have a mustache or a goatee oh right and he he looks like someone else. He looks like well, not Stretcher, but he doesn't look like Roadblock. Mm. So I want, want I want those I want those uh, signifiers, and I'd like them consistent. Uh, Gung Ho going from a mustache to a goatee. I don't feel like that's breaking the character. I feel like that's modernizing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because very few people nowadays, you know, like Top Gun Maverick is in theaters right now, and the character that Miles Teller plays has a mustache and. I can't count on my hand the number of action movies from the last five years where one of the three lead characters had a mustache, just a mustache, like not a goatee, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. My next error detected was then part of, I think, this hearts and minds strategy of Destro trying to, to win over the populace. There's this casino sequence, and uh, kind of the payoff of that is that there's a casino payouts um on behalf of cobra lots of coins stream out of the slot machines only uh only as they're gathering up as the people in the casino are gathering up the coins they are they are a pile of red coins on a red carpet uh, somewhat making that sequence slightly less effective yeah there are two panels where the coins are drawn gold or dark gray and then there's a third panel where they're red this isn't an error detected but speaking of this two-page scene at the casino at the three different casinos right mirage casino bellagio casino and the mgm grand casino i thought the i've been to the mgm grand it's green anyway uh maybe this one entrance is beige john roush's coloring looks great in this issue Uh, (laughs) these are the two pages that are uh drawn as nine panel grids and the first three panels there's a let's say a cobra agent in a red tie and a black suit and just brown hair with a part looking at his watch and he's he's statted he's copied and pasted in panel two and three and then it happens again on the next page where he's pushing a button reap 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 and that's what i guess makes the tvs and the slot machines have the cobra logo Mm -hmm. and, and dispense the money and again his pose in the first panel is copied and pasted in the second panel. And that's weird to me because it, if to me, the rules are if you have someone taking the same pose, it's not going to be precisely the same pose. So I know it's hard, but you, you draw it again and you know, their arms a little bit higher or their heads a little bit lower or they're 
um, waist is twisted a little bit more to the right or the left. Mm. If you copy and paste, it, this is like not even a clone. This is like mathematically, it's like they're sort of teleporting from one place to the mm-hmm. next and they are the precisely same person and position. And there's no like color or sound effect to show that this is teleportation. That's not what this is. And I, I, I take it, I think that you probably interpret this sequence slightly different to, to me. I My interpretation is that this these are three separate CGs, uh, Crimson Guards, and so all look the same, and they're all and they're simultaneously doing this thing in three different casinos. Yeah, that's that. Yes, good, thank you. But still, like Tim Staley, yeah, yeah, yeah. just mm-hmm. just draw that pose. Like you can even like copy and paste the pencils. I mean, you don't actually do this, but have the inker at least ink it a second time and a third time. So there are small differences because even though they're CGs, they're, they're clones or they've had plastic surgery to look alike. These aren't Cobra bats. These are, these are people, you know, if like you and I like in front of, let's say Mark, let's say you and I are doing talking Joe live at some convention and we like get up on stage and we like do a bit where we're mirroring each other's actions. Like it's like a Marx brothers routine, right? That's like, well, it's not going to be perfect. So when it is this perfect, it sticks out to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that like any any shortcut, right? Like sure, copy and paste. Um, but, you know, it's like when, um, you know, you're looking at a Star Wars comic and an, like and an artist is drawing a bunch of stormtroopers and they draw the first one and then they copy and paste them like six times behind it offset to show a row of stormtroopers. Like that's okay. But it's also a little distracting, but this isn't like generic army guys in a row at these, at this one casino. It's three different people doing the same thing at three different places at the same time, which introduces more variation. Mm-hmm. Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in 36 after, Snake Eyes does stand down and is taken into custody. Yeah, she's also, t- Scarlet's also taken into custody. You don't see her hands handcuffed because they're cropped out of the panel, but the way her arms are, it looks like probably her hands are. Uh, so she passes Flint and he says, Scarlet, and she says, fix this. Uh, great, great panel, great tension, great body language on the characters, nice composition that there's a uh, a chin and a, uh, a chest in the extreme foreground. We're looking past the camera's low, a little bit low. The camera's at uh, four and a half feet, not standard, like five and a half feet. So we're not looking up at Flynn and Scarlet, but we're slightly looking up at them. It's great. Very good. Favorite line of dialogue? Mine was Armada. So during that sort of Cobra sequence, Alexander speak, talks to her, he says, just look at my father and that sow. Married in, married in secrecy, expecting a child. Never mind the clever way he split you and I apart. Did you notice that? The, the text is all very s- small, like he's he's whispering to her. And she says, mm, oh yes, I was quite surprised that he chose to send you back home, but left me here to work under him. And, uh, and it's just, it's just I don't know if I was reading too much into that, but there, there sounded a li- little bit of innuendo there, a bit of... Uh, bit of like to work under him is like is there is there kind of a little bit of a kind of 
spark going on there between Destro Senior and uh, and Mistress Armada. You know, splitting them up in different locations, mm. having her work under him. Mm. Maybe your mind's in the gutter the way that you assumed uh, my mind was in the gutter when <laughs> we talked about that Real American Hero issue with Jinx and Helix fighting the, the casino. <laughs> and one of them had a skirt, not three. Um, uh, the panel you're referring to where she says to work under him, Tim Seeley nicely pulls off the thing that I criticized him for earlier in the episode, where in this panel, Alexander's face is somewhat in shadow mm-hmm. because what he's saying here, well, yes, well, I've, I'm surprised by a lot of things lately, right? We're not supposed to know exactly how he feels in this scene by shadowing out his face. We have to sort of guess and we might sort of guess too far or wrong, which is like delicious, but also he's definitely not happy because he was just complaining mm-hmm. a panel ago. So two things make this blacking out in ink of Alexander's face. Two things here make it work where it doesn't in that earlier example. Uh, one, the shape is better contoured to bone and muscle in and on his head. Two, John Rausch's coloring is much stronger so Roush is is supporting this heavy shadowing that is only in this one panel on this page with Alexander's complexion and the saturation of the curtain above and Armada's collar and all that stuff. Whereas that example of that panel in the next issue where Snake Eyes and Duke are sort of mirroring each other in the back of the van, there isn't enough heft in the color there to sort of like match what the inking is trying to do. Okay, should we give it a Yo-Jo score? Let's crack open a a Yo-Jo Cola and uh, give it a ranking out of 10. Yo-Jo Cola, not grape soda. It's Yo-Jo-Age time. Five, six, five. Call it five and a half. (laughs) I, I try not to do halves, but an improvement in color for one of these two issues. I, I would rather uh, Jerwa fit in too much than too little. And he mostly pulls off fitting in too much. Mm-hmm. But some things are falling by the wayside um, in writing and in storytelling and in art. Uh, I, I don't love that death scene and, you know, the jugglers and General Ray and uh, and and the, the torture scene with Mindbender, uh, mm-hmm. take it down. Yeah, I think I'm probably in at about six and a half. Uh, the, the story and art aren't necessarily always perfect, but generally pretty well executed. And so much going on that I feel like I could, you know, it's an issue that I could quite easily go back to and and again and again, and uh, and not be able to remember it all from the previous read or or to to you know, notice something new. So. Yeah, and and sort of uh, laying the foundations there for for what might be happening next as as well. So um, this was one that actually got me uh, got me. Tr- uh, I I try not to read ahead, but this one did get me sort of going, and I did read a tiny bit uh, ahead, which um, may, gives gives a little bit of additional kind of sort of foresight as to to some of the the track that is being laid, some of the foreshadowing some of the misdirection as well so uh interesting stuff here's my guess the next issue mostly a flashback 
to Tracker's previous mission <laughs> at his uh, memorial service, officiated by uh, General Ray in a in a much more uh, reasonable GI Joe costume. Mm, well, let's see if that happens, Tim. Okay. Okay, so uh, I think that is us pretty much done with uh, these two issues. Next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at this era of G.I. Joe with issues 38 and 39 being part three and four of Union of the Snake. So uh, this one is going to be a three-part podcast uh, trilogy to cover the whole six parts. Uh, Back on the regular show, we are continuing to cover A Real American Hero as it comes out. The latest uh, arcs have been high stakes and all in Cobra Casino themed episodes. And uh, it's continuing the drumbeat to the milestone issue 300. So Tim, where can people find you? Video essays at uh, our youtube channel which is atomic abe productions my comic book store uh, is a brick and mortar place you can go in somerville massachusetts that's hub comics and i write about gi joe occasionally at a real american very good <laughs> you've still not got to the end of your issue 21 uh someone Someone in my orbit uh, passed away, so I want to write about that first because uh-huh. that's sort of on my mind. And I, I kind of wanted to draw something for the chapter th- part three of my Silent Interlude remake uh, post. So, uh, want to spend time on that? Mm. Stop. Yeah, this is a this is a GI Joe person that passed away. Yeah, uh, um, um, my my the former photographer who worked on my book. Oh crumbs. So uh, a an acquaintance and a very talented photographer. So I wanted to write about him. Uh-huh. Where can people find you and, and us, Mark? <laughs> we are at talkingjoe.co.uk, which is the website that has links to all of the different places where we are online, such as Talking Joe, a G.I. Joe podcast on Facebook, Talking Joe on Twitter, Talking Joe Comics on Instagram uh, and on the website. There's also a link to our answer phone. So if you want to leave us comments uh, or feedback on a particular point, then you can do so. Uh, just bear in mind that <laughs> if you do that now, who knows on the Devil's Due episodes when we'll actually get to releasing it. Um, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com, Talking Joe. A big thanks to our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, and Rob, who are getting early access to episodes as well as exclusive content. Um, and with all that said, we are done. But as we depart, with our back to the audience, remember that... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! With just two guys this episode, one in England and one there on the other side of the pond in that place they call America. Laters. Um, cool. Yeah, let's see if he he wants lunch. <laughs> okay. He wants he wants he wants dinner part one, or he wants a chair ride. I love it. <laughs>